when we use those types of words, if you look at psychoneuroimmunology, our mind is is essentially the god of the cells of our body. So if we say those types of words, he broke my heart, so-and-so's a pain in the ass, so-and-so's a pain in the neck, so-and-so makes me sick to my stomach. There's mountains of research showing that there's a, a significant probability that we'll actually manifest the physical um, expression of those words. And I've seen it happen clinically many times. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. In today's episode, Paul talks about the pain teacher and how we can better understand, work with, and make meaning of our pain. Well, hello, and welcome back to Living 4D with me, Paul Check. I am super excited to share this new four-part series I've created called Lessons from the Pain Teacher. And share what I've learned in my 35-year career as a therapist, coach, uh, a lifestyle coach, uh, trainer, and conditioning specialist for athletes of all sizes and shapes and skill levels. And most importantly, in my own life, and I will tell you, I am still learning a lot, even at 58 years of age, but I enjoy it, and the lessons that I share here have helped me tremendously to turn pain and bondage into freedom, and that's really my dream for you all with this series. In this important four-part series, I cover many real issues and practical teachings regarding how we can better understand, work with, and make meaning of our pain. And this series is highly applicable to individuals of all ages who are old enough to understand what I'm talking about, and very, very helpful, in my opinion, for doctors, therapists, coaches, teachers, leaders of all types. In part one of the series, I will cover what pain is, why pain is important, and what we can learn from it, the six primary classes of stressors that we are all engaged in every day. I will cover Pfluger's laws of facilitation and how pain spreads throughout our body, which for those of you that have never learned Pfluger's laws, I'm sure you're going to find this fascinating. I will discuss the four classes of reflex uh, pathways the body uses to distribute pain, and I will teach you how to make a pain tree to identify the root causes of dysfunction, disability, and pain which will be very helpful for you as individuals or as therapists. Then in part two, I will cover the four kinds of patients, which are all people in the world, as they relate to being in pain and working with therapists and doctors, so that you can identify to the best of your ability, A, which one of them you might be and how you can grow from that, and B, for those of you that are doctors, therapists, and coaches, uh, I will share tips for helping you better manage each of those four types. 
I will share tips for those challenged in their approach to healing to inspire efficient healing to gain freedom and meaning from their pain. I will explain and explore instincts. We will look at Carl Jung's four functions of consciousness and how they relate to pain. And then we will finish with an exploration of my I-We-All model of loving and how we create pain by not understanding that we are the source of love for ourselves and our relationships. In part three, I will cover the seven healing and personal, professional, spiritual, and growth benefits pain can bring us when we engage it consciously. I will share the Buddhist principle of dukkha, the essential nature of imbalance in the universe and why perfection is a trap that causes people a lot of pain. We will then explore man's triune brain based on Paul McLean's research and how we experience pain as it relates to the functions of the reptilian, limbic, and neocortical structures of the brain and how to better understand that. And then we will look into the structure stages of consciousness and how our views and challenges with issues of God change as we grow in consciousness and conscious awareness. In part four, I will cover the check one, two, three, four approach to honoring the pain teacher, what soul and spirit really are. I will go through the five essential questions a shaman is likely to ask you and discuss how your answers can tell you a lot about the etiology or the source of your pain and some tips for what to do about it to turn that pain into opportunity and meaning. And we will look at how the pain teacher comes to teach us how to balance ourselves when we're unconscious of or not participating in balancing ourselves with regard, with regard to the creation of our own happiness, moving our bodies, eating well, or resting and going within effectively. We will look at the nature of choice and how being unconscious of our choices invites the pain teacher to awaken us. I will share closing comments to encapsulate the series, and I invite all of you to share your deepest questions for upcoming Q&A with Paul podcasts, and you're welcome to share those questions as they come to you at questions at checkinstitute.com and just make sure it's clear that it's for uh, me and the upcoming Q&A podcasts with Paul on the Living 4D podcast. But please make sure that if you're sending questions in, they are deep, legitimate, real questions, not just fluffy stuff like, uh, how, did, how do I fix this cut? Or why do I have so much gas. <laughs> the, the answer to that is because you need digestive enzymes. So thank you. I'm excited to start this series with you. With that shared, let's get into part one. Enjoy. I've lived in my life with plenty of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges of my own. And as a para, uh, therapist over the past 35 years, helping others better understand how to heal and grow from their painful experiences, I've learned a lot about pain. Pain is so common in people's lives, in, in the lives of my patients and clients. And because I've worked through much of it in 
my life, uh, I actually coined the term the pain teacher many years ago to encapsulate the idea that when pain comes, our teacher has arrived to both help us become more aware of how to use our creative powers and how to grow. I have and my students and patients have benefited greatly by developing a positive conscious awareness with regard to pain and learning how to learn lessons quickly (laughs) and make meaning whenever possible. You know, if we can make meaning out of our pain, then it ultimately becomes less painful. Pain's a reliable attribute of human life. I think we all realize nobody escapes pain in life. And there are many coping strategies. Some are helpful, some are palliative, but not curative. And some are (laughs) not helpful at all. They make things a lot worse. Though most people's first reaction to any potential pain is to avoid it. And when it does happen, to get rid of it as fast as possible. The wise know that such approaches seldom get to the root causes, which leads to a prolongation of our pain. With respect to meaning, anyone that has enough maturity and hindsight to look at how pain has functioned in their life generally sees that pain ultimately led to awareness, which led to making essential, beneficial changes that proved fruitful in the long run. So the goal of my podcast today, Lessons from the Pain Teacher, is to share my life experience and insights on how we can best work with pain such that it becomes a source of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual guidance, a source of feedback that allows us to know when we are potentially initiating a positive growth process a tool for reminding us to evaluate whether or not we're using our mind, our, our creative abilities, effectively to create what we want, and as a means of reminding us to look for patterns that may suggest that our conscious choices are not well thought out, or that our unconscious choices need to become conscious so we can look at how we're using our creative pen- potential through the light of awareness. Arnold Patent has uh, what he calls universal principles, which you can find at arnoldpatent.com. And in essence, what he says in one of them is, if we don't like what's happening in our lives, such as pain or dysfunctional relationships or financial problems or repeated challenges of this type or that, that we should look carefully at what we are choosing unconsciously. And there's very deep truth in that. Pain is something that quickens consciousness. It wakes us up. We all know for sure where the leg on a chair or a table is (laughs) once we stub our toe on it. We become very acutely conscious so that next time we walk past that chair, we don't do the same thing again. So there's just a simple example of how pain quickens consciousness. But before we begin, 
I think it would be a good idea to define pain, uh, you know, because for a lot of people, pain is different things and people feel pain differently. Um, you know, a man watches his wife or partner have a baby and the variation in pain expression amongst women is tremendous. I've seen women give birth to children with minimal uh, expression of pain, yet I've also been there, well, both of my my uh, wives that have had children, my first wife, Sue, and Angie, uh, recently has had, you know, my son, Mana, but uh, she had a C-section, which had its own challenges of fear of being surgically open, and then Zoe um, was a very intense 36-hour labor process that ultimately ended in a C-section, unfortunately, but it worked well and we're happy. But I watched her go through intense pain. And so there you can see that we can watch one event in one circumstance and make the assumption that it must be like that for everybody, but in another circumstance, in people that have different mental, emotional dispositions, body structures, biochemistry, history, um, connection to their soul, possibly, trust in great spirit, the process can be very different. And for some, it can be equally painful, but the internal experience of the pain can produce very, very different results from person to person. So I chose some definitions from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Uh, our first definition of pain is punishment, uh, the pains and penalties of crime. Also, a localized or general unpleasant bodily sensation or complex of, of sensations that causes mild to severe, severe physical discomfort and emotional distress and typically results from a bodily disorder such as injury or disease. Acute shooting pains also, the state marked by the presence of such sensations. A basic bodily sensation that is introduced by a noxious stimuli, is received by a naked nerve endings, is associated with actual or potential tissue damage, is characterized by physical discomfort such as pricking, throbbing, or aching, and typically leads to evasion of pain. A mental or emotional distress or suffering, grief, the pain that she had left those at those uh, the, the the pain that she had left at those humiliating words so the the uh the pain of grief and also the pain of humiliation are are some examples and then plural definitions the throes of childbirth uh trouble care or effort taken to accomplish something i was at pains to reassure us informal one that irks or annoys or is otherwise troublesome. Almost anything requires a password these days, and it can be a real pain to remember them all. <laughs> Often used in such phrases as pain in the neck or impolite, a pain in the ass, 
his little sister is a real pain in the neck. So that's a, uh, when we use those types of words, if you look at psychoneuroimmunology, our mind is, is essentially the God of the cells of our body. So if we say those types of words, he broke my heart, so-and-so's a pain in the ass, so-and-so's a pain in the neck, so-and-so makes me sick to my stomach. There's mountains of research showing that there's a, a significant probability that we'll actually manifest the physical um, expression of those words. And I've seen it happen clinically many times. I've had patients I had to really just sit down and have a long discussion with because it's such a negative, negative association to their pain and used words like, I hate this. I want to cut it out. I just wish that this part of my body would die, things like that. Now, because pain generally equates to stress, let's look at some key definitions of stress. Reactions of the body to forces of a deleterious nature, infections, and various abnormal states that tend to disturb its normal physiologic equilibrium, or homeostasis. A physical or psychological stimulus, such as very high heat, public criticism, or another noxious agent or experience which, when impinging upon certain individuals, produces psychological strain or disequilibrium. Now, because pain is very, very linked to stress, I mean, pretty much inextricable, I've, I've, I don't think I know of anybody that goes into pain and doesn't have a stress reaction unless they're a very, very advanced yogi or somebody like that. And I've seen some pretty wild things in documentaries where uh, advanced yogis can, you know, put swords through their body and feel no pain or express no pain, um, pick up burning hot objects. I actually saw a documentary with a Tibetan monk once who put a shovel in a fire and he let it sit there till it was so hot, the metal actually began to glow white and the shovel was beginning to lose its shape and he picked it up and the shovel just folded and he literally held his tongue on that shovel for probably a good 10 or 15 seconds and you could hear the hissing and see the steam coming off his tongue and he showed no signs of pain whatsoever and he actually smiled and he said, see, didn't hurt me at all. So if you do enough spiritual development work, you can transform the vibration of your body and do things that seem impossible to others. I know this to be true because uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, Tony Robbins was a client of mine and I did a lot of therapy for him and he invited me to his firewalk ceremony, which is very real. And um, I did the firewalk and the coals on that firewalk were 2,600 degrees. I stood right next to them and I have a lot of experience with fires. I grew up in a home that had a coal stove and wood-fired oven and we heated the whole house with firewood and coal and I've built many fires for clearing land and, and have a long 
exposure to fire. So I'm very familiar with the heat of fire. And I also have a lot of background in metalwork. And those coals were damn hot. So there was no gimmick about it. And it was a good, I would guess, 30 feet across, probably uh, six to 10 full walking steps. So there's no way you could just skate across that without uh, the heat having an effect on you. And we went through a process of preparing our mind using uh, sort of a form of self-hypnosis. And I did get into that state and I walked across the coals and, and kept my mind completely focused. But when I got to the other side and could free my mind of my focus, I could hear people's feet just steaming and burning and I could hear people screaming. And most of the time they got about halfway across and could not hold their focus and fell into their fear. And the instant they lost their capacity to raise their vibration and use the powers of their mind to spiritualize their body, they got burned. And there was plenty of people in the ambulance to demonstrate the reality of that firewalk. Hi, this is Paul Check, and I am super excited to share an amazing line of super nutritional products that I found called Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. If you go to Organifi.com and check out their product line, they have a wide variety of excellent products. And unlike any food-based product company that's ever showed interest in sponsoring the Czech Institute or any of my courses or products or videos or any of the projects I've done that stated they were organic, when I asked them for their organic certification, I never got them. I have been through this before. When I contacted Organifi and asked to see their documentation that they were legitimately using organic source materials, very quickly I got an email with 14 organic certifications showing that their source materials are certified organic. Then I put the products to the test with my family and on my own body, and I must say I was very impressed. They have a wide variety. They have green juice, red juice. They have a product called Gold that aids with sleep, muscle aches and pains, and joint stiffness. It helps bolster your immunity. It's awesome. One of my favorites is called Pure, and it's got lion's mane. It's Bobab infused. It's great for gut health, brain performance. Lion's mane is excellent for stimulating neurogenesis. I love to give it to my son, Mana. Another one that's fantastic is Immunity, which is an organic superfood product, and it supports your immune system. It tastes fantastic. I like to put these right in some water and mix them in and drink them or put them into tea. They have a variety of great stuff like green juices, red juice. They have Organifi Gold. It aids with restless sleep, muscle aches and pains, stiff joints, bolsters your immunity. You'll wake up feeling rejuvenated if you have that in the evening. They have awesome protein powders. Angie's about to give birth to our second child and she's been really enjoying their protein powder. Their products are safe for pregnant mothers. 
I'm a very picky guy and I'm hard to impress when it comes to food products, but these guys really got me. I love the products. If you are ready to try some amazing products that can really make your life more efficient, if you don't have time to do a lot of cooking, you're a busy executive or you're a mother and you've got lots going on and you need something to give your kids now and then that's legitimately nutritious, good for them, and organic, which means clean and high in nutrients, you can't go wrong with Organifi. Go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com, and when you're checking out, put in check 20s, lowercase c, lowercase h, lowercase e, lowercase k, 20, and you will get a 20% off at checkout. And you will be amazed, just like I was. Can't wait to hear your feedback. Check them out. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. When you're checking out, use the code C-H-E-K-20 for a 20% discount. And prepare to be nourished, enlivened, and amazed. I'd love to hear your feedback. So knowing that pain and stress are coupled, it's important to remember that there are six primary classes of stressors that we experience. Physical stressors, such as physical activity, work, or falling, falling off a horse, falling off a bike, or down some stairs. Chemical stressors, which can be uh, external chemicals or internal chemicals external chemicals. If you accidentally get battery acid on you from a car battery, for example, it will burn you. Uh, If you touch certain types of chemicals, they can not only burn you or worse, but they can kill you. And there's the chemical stress of our internal physiology, such as having the ideal or optimal pH balance within our physiology. Um, There is also the chemical stress of hormone imbalance. There's the chemical stress created by the chemical byproducts of organisms such as fungus and parasites, which can be quite traumatic and disruptive. So there's a variety of chemical stresses. There's the chemical stress of of being toxic, such as mercury, poisoning, aluminum poisoning, and many other things. There's a variety of chemical stresses. Next, we have thermal stress, so being too hot or too cold for healthy regulation. Next, we have electromagnetic stress, such as sunburn or electromagnetic pollution from things like wireless systems, electronics, microwave ovens, 5G, uh, phone uh, systems, and the electromagnetic fields put off by electrical devices and electrical engines. Then we have nutritional stress, which a huge percentage of the population today is experiencing. And we have psychic stress, which is, psyche means soul, so stress of mind, stress of emotion, stress regarding how we're perceiving things within ourselves. Now, when we look at 
stress, it's important to remember that we need stress to be healthy and grow or our body breaks down. In other words, we don't get enough physical exercise to effectively fight gravity that will have a negative effect on on our on ourselves on us um if we don't get enough sunlight we can become vitamin d deficient if we don't eat good food we can get all sorts of problems so we have the stress of hunting and gathering we have the uh, positive stress of going out and playing in the sunshine and doing things that challenge us whether that be lifting weights or climbing mountains or seeing if you can best your time in the kayak or the canoe, etc. So the name given many years ago for positive stress is U-stress or useful stress. And the negative form of stress, so if we do any of these things to extremes which causes trauma, then we have distress. And it's also important to remember that the word disease means dis-ease, too much energy, too much wind-up, too much excitation, um, the inability to rest in balance. So distress leads to disease if it's not managed effectively. Now, what I'd like to talk about next is something that very few people are aware of, even skilled medical professionals. And I was very fortunate to learn about Pfluger's laws, which is what we're going to talk about next. When I did my neuromuscular therapy training in 1986 with Paul St. John, and Pfluger's laws describe how pain moves through the body. Um, for example, if you have a physical injury and it's not uh, treated properly or you keep irritating it, what, what will the pain do inside the body? How will the body handle that? And I've found those laws have helped me really understand what's going on with a lot of complicated cases in my life and help people that were medical failures or professional athletes whose careers were over and had been forced into medical retirement. <clears throat> so the laws are called Pfluger's Laws of Facilitation. And I'll tell you just a little story about that. They were referenced only as Pfluger's Laws of, of Facilitation in my course manuals in neuromuscular therapy. And I've spent years trying to get the resource, the reference from Paul St. John and could never get it. I got a lot of excuses, but I never got the reference. So I actually spent probably... 10 more years researching everywhere, high and low. And I found references. I even went to professional librarians. My God, I was so destined to get these laws because whenever I would share them with physicians, they would always say, give me a resource for that. And so I could refer them to my neuromuscular therapy manual, which they couldn't get unless they were in the course. And they didn't put a lot of credence in that, which is why I was after Paul St. John to get the reference. Um, 
So I put a pretty intensive effort into it, and it was sometimes frustrating because I was I'm very used to finding things. I'm you know quite good at doing research and and even better at finding people that are better at me than doing research. And I've hired researchers to work for me many times. But all I could find was reference to Pfluger, who was a, a German physiologist. And so there would be an article here and there referring to him or talking about some research that he was doing, but nothing about Pfluger's laws. So long story made short, the strangest of things happened one day. I was in La Jolla, which is in a beautiful suburb of San Diego, where the Czech Institute actually first was founded. I was having breakfast with a friend who is a, a chiropractor and a dentist named Dr. Daryl Curl, quite an intelligent, amazing man, who is the editor of the book Chiropractic Approach to Head Pain for uh, written in, with which I wrote a chapter in. In uh, it was published in, I think ninety one, but I wrote the chapter in eighty nine or something like that. It took him three years to publish it. But right next to us was one of these kind of antiquated used bookstores, just you know, like piles of books, nothing flashy or fancy. And while I was sitting there, I just had a very powerful intuition that I needed to get up and go look in that bookstore to see if there was a medical book with Pfluger's laws in it. And I went in there and said, do you have a medical section? And he said, yes, I do have some medical books. And he took me to the far corner of the bookstore where there was maybe three or four shelves of mostly kind of old, outdated medical books. And my buddy, Dr. Curl, who'd also been looking for this research for as long as I, or this, this resource for as long as I had, fortunately for me, was on the other side of the bookstore. And I found this book published, I believe, in 1929 called Neurology. And I went right to the index and lo and behold, it said Pfluger's Laws. And I about shit myself. I'm like, holy shit. And I turned to the page, and there they were, beautiful, written exactly as I had come to know them through my neuromuscular therapy training. And it was beautiful because it was a neurology text so that the physicians that kind of think some of these things are foo-foo could uh, at least anchor themselves in the reality of the resource. And to my knowledge, these laws have not been disproven. And even if someone thought they had, I would question it because I have countless cases of clinical situations where these laws played out beautifully. So before we dive into Pfluger's laws of reflex, uh, laws of facilitation or reflex action, I would like to explain the known reflex arcs as they help us understand why and how pain spreads in our body-mind. A reflex arc means if you do something in one place, it causes something to happen somewhere else. For example, if someone taps your patella tendon with a reflex hammer, it causes your muscles to contract and your knee extends forward. But that all happened from tension moving through the tendon into the spindle cells, causing a surge of information through the gamma system, which then goes to the spinal cord 
and triggers a reaction at the same segmental level by the alpha motor neurons, which causes a knee-jerk. So there you see one thing at one end causes a change at some other end, and then it causes a reaction. So the reflex arcs are somato, which means body tissue or muscle, depending on how it's being used. Visceral, somato-visceral. So that means that pain in body tissue, such as muscle, fat, skin, fascia, bone, periosteum, etc., cartilage, uh, where there's uh, innervation in around cartilaginous areas, such as your knee joint, for example, can reflex to viscera, which means internal organs. Our next reflex pathway is somato-somato. So said simply, muscles can refer pain or send pains into other muscles. Then visceral somato, which means glands and organs can and frequently do send pain and also uh, motor modulation into the muscle tissue or the surface of the body, such as the skin. Think of a heart attack. That's a visceral somato expression because you have nobody walks into the doctor saying, doctor, my heart hurts. They all say, I have pain in my left chest and down my left arm, and I am having a hard time breathing. So there is the heart visceral referring pain into the chest and left arm somato. So there's a classic example. Another classic example of a visceral somato reflex is a woman who is premenstrual and has low back pain or uh, pain in her legs or pain around her nipples or the base of her skull, which are common areas for premenstrual pain, uh, women to uh, have pain. So that's a viscero-somato reflex. And finally, we have visceral, visceral or viscero-viscero, which means gland or organ sending pain into gland or organ. So these are the standard physiological mechanisms by which pain moves in and around the body. And these things are very, very real and very, very active and frequently overlooked by uh, physical therapists, rehabilitationists, doctors, and all sorts of people. Now, as a side note here, psychosomatic pain is pain that comes from largely us believing our thoughts. And there is a lot of psychosomatic pain out there. Uh, some studies say as much as 60% of people's pain that come to doctors and therapists is psychosomatic. Some say as little as 38, but it's still very high. So psychosomatic pain isn't in our reflex arcs. That's why I'm mentioning it. The known reflex arcs can be driven by our mind and emotions. They can become the source of physical pain or mental emotional pain can be a product of physical pain. So what I'm really trying to drive across here is that if you are stressing yourself about thinking your girlfriend or your lover is going to leave you or your child's going to get hurt or sick, that can immediately trigger a sympathetic reaction in the body, which can tighten the muscles of the neck quite significantly. The limbic emotional part of our brain dumps its pain first into the temporalis masseter 
upper trapezius and levator scapula, the muscles that you uh, hike your shoulders up with. If you hold a phone on your shoulder, for example, so it's up against your head, you're using the levator scapula, which means elevator of the scapula. So when the limbic system has too much energy running through it to protect itself, it will dump the pain through the uh, cranial nerves and motor system into those areas. And that could easily, if it goes on long enough, cause the development of trigger points, which are hypersensitive points in muscle due to muscle breakdown from chronic reaction to the discomfort or to the belief. And that can send pain both into other muscles and into other organs or glands, which can then begin sending pain to other areas. And this can go on producing quite a uh, interesting little volley that can lead to a lot of confusions amongst doctors and therapists as to what the hell's going on and lead to doctors saying, it's all in your head. (laughs) Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. It's often a lot in the body, but just not being identified effectively. So Pfluger's research on how pain spreads in the body of living organisms and human beings resulted in the creation of his laws of facilitation, which explain how pain spreads. Now I'm going to take you through these laws, and a lot of you will be going, oh my God, that's happened to me before, or you'll be having these aha moments. And when I get through them, then I'm going to teach you a technique that I teach Czech professionals and that all the instructors do to give you an exercise you can do at home that will be very, very helpful in tracking your own pain history and will give you a much greater chance of identifying what challenge may actually be the etiology or the cause of pains that you had and may or may not have resolved and may still have. And it will give you great insight as to what to do about them, what you might be able to do, what kind of therapist you might need need to see. And it's a fun and it's not a hard exercise to do, but it can be very, very revealing. Now, if you want the actual reference for uh, Pfluger's Laws, for some of you, a lot of you listening to my podcast, I, I know are Czech professionals, and other types of therapists. So these laws come from a textbook of neurology by Joy M. Loban, L-O-B-A-N, the Bunn Loban Publishing Company, Denver, Colorado, 1929. And I have a lot of old medical books because I really find that prior to about 1950, around 1950, things started shifting. Researchers were genuinely interested in finding the answers to things. They were typically not being paid by corporations to get the results the corporations wanted to sell things or you know try to you know create some sort of an agenda. They were genuine researchers and there's a lot of damn good research out there. I mean all you got to do is read a book like um, Blueprint for Immortality by Harold Saxon Burr, which I believe was written in 1947 or 48 about L fields or life fields. And he was a professor at Yale University. And when you see the amazing research that guy was doing way back then, if it was published again today, it would still be right cutting edge. 
And you have people like Julius Chandler Bose, who did marvelous research on the anatomy, physiology, and consciousness of plants all the way back in the early 1900s. And I could go on and on and on. There's just all sorts of great stuff. I'm saying this because a lot of you might hear that this book is from 1929 and say, oh, that's just going to be old, outdated bullshit. Right. Well, quantum physics was identified or or created or uncovered around 1920, and there's nobody walking around saying that's bullshit today. Uh, you know, the wheel was invented a long time ago, and no one says that's bullshit. We figured out how to use fire a long time ago, and no one thinks that's bullshit. So just be real careful not to um, devalue good resources because they're old, because the truth is timeless and wisdom is timeless. So that said, let's get into the... um, how Pfluger's laws unfold, and I'll give you the name of each law as we go. So our first law is the law of unilaterality. Now, what I'm going to do to help you better comprehend these laws, especially for those of you without uh, background training in physiology, is I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story that I often tell my students in um, Czech practitioner training where we go through and learn how to use these laws. First, I'll read you the law, then I'll tell you how it applies to the story. The law of unilaterality says, if a mild irritation is applied to one or more sensory nerves, the movement will take place usually on one side only and on that side which is irritated. So let's pretend that we are talking about a man who is a painter for a living who has just gone out to mow his lawn and he's got a uh, gas-powered pull-start mower and he goes to pull on the starter cord and the engine kicks back. If you've never had that happen, uh, an engine can kick back. So all of a sudden, it'll pull back. Some of you have had motorcycles have had a kickback from an engine before. It can be painful if you're not ready for it. And when he pulled the cord real hard to start the motor and it kicked back, it strained his right rotator cuff. So we'll call it his right infraspinatus, teres minor, or maybe supraspinatus. We'll just call it the rotator cuff. So it's quite painful, and he goes to see a physical therapist eventually because he is quite debilitated by the pain. The physical therapist evaluates that he has strained his rotator cuff and that there's a bunch of trigger points in it and gives him home stretches, home exercise, ice therapy, and gives him some gentle exercises to pump blood through the area and help it heal. So we'll begin our story there. The next law is the law of symmetry, which says if the, if the stimulation is sufficiently increased, motor reaction is manifested not only by the irritated side, but also in similar muscles on the opposite side of the body. 
So what that means is if the intensity of the noxious stimuli or technical term nociception, which means pain input to the spinal cord reaches a high enough level to protect itself, the body will shuttle that pain directly across in the internuncial pool, which is uh, inside your spinal cord, and share the pain with the same muscles at the same segmental level. So your rotator cuff is primarily innervated by C5, for example. So this guy goes back to the physical therapist a couple weeks later, or a week later, and I forgot one piece she told him he needed to take time off work if he could not paint with his opposite arm or the painting would cause problems. So he goes back to the physical therapist and he complains that the pain's getting worse and he says that he now has a similar pain in the same place on his opposite shoulder, but he did not do anything to hurt it. And the physical therapist explains to him that's because you did not do the home stretches and exercises and icing that I suggested. And so she then says, did you stop painting? He said, well, no, I need the money and it's too hard to paint with my left hand. So I just did the best I could with my right hand. So you see, he continued to irritate it and produce metabolic waste and further traumatize the tissues, which caused further bombardment of the spinal cord, which leads to pain jumping through a reflex loop. So what we're describing is a somato-somato reflex, muscle to muscle. So she says to him, listen, we'll call him Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith, it's this can get worse if you don't follow the directions I gave you, do the exercises, stretches, icing, mobilizing, etc., and make sure you don't use that arm to paint and minimize your use of it for other activities, or you're going to end up needing to have it put in a splint. So he goes home, and he does what most men do. Men are far more challenging to work with as a therapist than women, by the way. Women are much more proactive. <laughs> they come to you before their body parts are falling off. And they usually are much better at doing the things suggested for healing. So he comes home as a typical guy does, and he goes right back to making excuses and doing the same old thing. So he enters now into the law of intensity, which is our third law of Pfluger's laws of reflex action. And the law reads, reflex movements are usually more intense on the side of irritation. At times, these movements of the opposite side equal them in intensity, but they are usually less pronounced. So he shows back next week to his physical therapy appointment, and the therapist says, how are you doing, how are you doing Mr. Smith? And he says, well, to be honest with you, now I have as much pain in my other shoulder as I do in the one I originally injured, and I can't figure out why, because I'm still not using that left arm to paint or do things out of the ordinary. So what's happened is, is the intensity of the referral from the injured side to the opposite side is now happening at such great intensity that the overflow is producing 
symptoms on the other side. Remember, you have a pain spasm reflex cycle. So when tissues go into pain, they spasm, and that causes muscle contraction. Muscle contraction over prolonged periods of time reduces blood flow, leading to what's called ischemia, lack of blood, and anoxia, lack of oxygen, which causes more rapid tissue degradation and further pain, and that inspires the development of trigger points and makes it much easier to tear a muscle or muscle tendon junction or damage anything in the area because of the levels of acidity that happen in such situations. So she gives him the standard lecture and warns him again that if he doesn't follow her advice, that the pain can get worse. So he goes home and behaves like the typical male and keeps playing the same games and not doing what he was advised to do. He enters into the fourth law, the law of radiation. The law of radiation says if the excitation continues to increase, it is propagated upwards and reactions take place through centrifugal, which is an old term for motor nerves, coming from cord segments higher up. So that means that once the C5 level, which as I said, relates to the rotor cuff, rotator cuff becomes overloaded on both sides, it has no choice but to look for other places to dump pain. Now, a key caveat here is wherever you've had pain in your body, any time in the past, and the greater the pain, the more the pain pathways become facilitated. What does facilitation mean? Well, the law of facilitation says when an impulse passes once through a given set of neurons to the exclusion of others, it tends to do so on a future occasion. And each time it traverses this path, the resistance will be smaller, which means it becomes easier and easier to be in pain. So what that means, for example, is if you get Uh, let's say, a stomach parasite that's eating into your stomach. And that causes enough pain that when your body sends that pain out of the stomach, and the stomach's innervated by T5 through T9 in the thoracic region, it will look for places to send that pain. And if you've got an old low back injury that you might have had 10 years ago or from high school football or any number of things, and it was a significant injury, those pain pathways are already pre-facilitated. So all of a sudden, somebody with a stomach parasite issue can find themselves having a reoccurrence of what will be described as pain just like when I hurt myself in college football, but I haven't hurt my back. So remember that when we're talking about pain going into the law of radiation moving up the spinal cord, which it initially does. Now, these laws could probably be updated by the fact that it also will go down. So that's another more technical discussion. But the reality of it is, remember, and the reason I'm teaching you this is to help you understand how some of you can have pain that seems not to be going away and to realize it may be actually coming from other sources and even sources that you think have healed. So he continues to be himself, acts like the typical guy, 
And it gets worse. And he goes back to the physical therapist and he explains, now not only do I have pain in my shoulders, but I have pain in my neck as well. And she gives him the standard line, works on him, makes him feel better, and says, Mr. Smith, now remember to do what I told you to do because it could get worse. (laughs) You'd be amazed at what people will do to themselves and pay good money for it too, meaning they'll keep coming to therapists and doctors and not listening. And we're going to get into that very issue in a while. But uh, I've seen it happen many times, and even at the rates that I charge, which are you know not cheap by any means, people still play games like that. But I always let them know exactly who's creating the problem. So once you get through that law of radiation, where pain is propagated upward through the motor nerves, and it looks for cord segments higher up to disperse the pain. If you keep doing that and it doesn't, you don't alleviate the source of the pain, the original rotator cuff injury. And by the way, by now, if weeks have gone by, all the tissues that are getting reflex pain, such as the opposite shoulder and now the neck, can start developing their own problems due to chronic spasm, chronic ischemia and anoxia. And they can develop trigger points, which can then start referring pain to all sorts of other places. And this can create what are called satellite trigger points, which then trigger off referrals to yet other regions. And so when this process keeps going, it can create a real problem. And you enter into Pfluger's final law, the law of generalization. The law of generalization says when the irritation becomes very intense, It is propagated in the medulla oblongata, which is in your brainstem, which becomes a focus from which stimuli radiate to all parts of the cord, causing general contraction of all the muscles of the body. I'll read that to you again because it's very important. And as I read it to you, I'm going to give you a couple of words to think about. Chronic fatigue syndrome. Fibromyalgia. Again, when the irritation becomes very intense, it is propagated in the medulla oblongata, which becomes a focus from which stimuli radiate to all parts of the cord, causing general contraction of all the muscles of the body, which is a sympathetic reaction to the pain, which triggers a fight-or-flight reaction, which elevates adrenaline and cortisol levels, which then has the effect of functionally repressing the parasympathetic nervous system's capacity to repair and regenerate the body, which leads to elevated levels of cortisol and an inability to sleep effectively, which burns your adrenal glands out progressively and your body because you can't drop into deep dreamless sleep and you can't regenerate your body. So people start waking up at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, they're wide awake, they're often sweating in bed. Why are they sweating in bed? Because when the sympathetic nervous system stays activated and adrenaline and cortisol levels are up, that activates the reticular activating system in the brain, which triggers alertness in the body and turns on all the body's alertness systems, which shifts you into a sympathetic state. And the whole process of being overly sympathetic 
means that you have hyper alertness, which keeps your core temperature up and your body's actually in this state of global contraction. So it's like you're working out all the time, even though you're laying in bed. So you get very hot and start sweating in bed. So you can see now that this man, when he comes back to the physical therapist, is not only going to say my right shoulder hurts and my left shoulder hurts and my neck hurts. He may now be complaining of pain in his back, which could be an old injury, and pain in his knee, which could be an even older injury. He could be complaining of weird things like all of a sudden now when he eats meat or fatty foods, he gets a lot of pain or starts getting headaches because the referral can actually go into organs and glands and create dysfunction at that level. And the organs and glands will then send their pain back into muscles to protect themselves from overload. Remember the word disease means dis-ease. There's an, a law called the Arndt-Schultz law, which you can see in a book like Dorland's Medical Dictionary. It says weak stimuli activate physiological processes. Moderate stimuli favor them and strong stimuli inhibit them. So what happens is the body operates on the men's principle, minimal electrical neuromuscular stimulation, very low voltages and amperages. It doesn't take a lot of power for the body to communicate with itself. So when you start getting these intense levels of stimuli, you're overloading the system and because glands and organs are more essential to survival than muscles at the end of the day what happens is the organs will send the neurological energy that is causing the excess excitation into the muscles that they share a neurological relationship with at the same level of innervation so the stomach for example is innervated by t5 through t9 but so are your abdominal muscles and so are your middle back muscles. So someone could all of a sudden having be having abdominal pain or pain in their back or pain between their shoulder blades and not know where the hell it's coming from, but it could be referred from the gallbladder, which could be getting an overload from the low back, which could be getting overloaded by the knee, which could be getting overloaded by the pain in the neck, which came from the left shoulder region, which was started in the right shoulder region as a scenario, just to sort of let you see how this unfolds. And it's very real. So now what I'd like to guide you through is a process I teach patients and students called creating a pain tree. So if you want to do this exercise with me, which I highly recommend, just stop the recording for a minute, run and grab yourself a sheet of paper, at least, you know, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and a pencil or something to write with. So if you're ready, or if you want to just try to memorize it and come back later, you can. What I'd like you to do now is draw a tree. First, draw about two thirds of the way down. So one third up from the bottom of the page, just draw a line, which represents the ground then the roots will be below ground level. And those roots would represent traumas that occurred with your mother between parents and family or with you during the prenatal period of your gestation. Or it could be 
even past life trauma, or it could be, um, it could be um, trauma from in the womb. It could be uh, a variety of things. It can be uh, intergenerational trauma. If you look at Mark Wu Lin's book, it it uh, it didn't start with you. He shows how pain can be transferred, pain and and uh, mental emotional distress of all types, and even physiological regulatory changes can be transferred for three generations. And other researchers are quite convinced it can go more generations. So to reiterate, the roots below the tree for each pain or problem that you can identify, such as my mom and dad were not getting along while I was in my mother's womb. My mother was under a lot of stress. Here I am now, but clearly there was a stressor. And remember, cortisol crosses the placenta. So the child is exposed to the mother's hormone levels, especially with cortisol. And so when she's reacting in fear, so is the body of the neonate, which in this case might be you. So anything that happened prior to your birth, while your mother was pregnant with you, should be listed down there if you know about it, because it could be a potential source of any number of challenges that you could be facing to this very moment. So you would draw a route. Mom and dad weren't getting along. Dad's parents did not approve of uh, mom because she's from a different religion or something like that. So any of those kinds of issues should be rooted, given a route with its own name and to the best of your ability, a date and a, a note at least about roughly what was going on. And if mother had any problems in her body, I would make a route for that. So if mom had chronic back pain or heart condition or was depressed, I would I would route that. I would give it a route, a name, and approximate date to the best of your ability because it helps you see where some of these things that in your life uh, now could be coming from. Okay? Next Beginning with the oldest or the first pains that you recall experiencing, be it physical, emotional, or mental pains or traumas, um, you would add a branch to your tree, starting from the bottom of the tree with the oldest pain or trauma. So the older the pain, the lower on the tree it is, closer to the ground, and you would add a branch for each painful event as you move up the tree toward the present time. Now, if you know you have a lot of pains, like I've worked with athletes that have had you know 30 orthopedic surgeries, such as X Games competitors, professional motocross racers, and people like that, skateboard stars, you name it, <laughs> all sorts of crazy guys that I love working with, um, stunt motorcycle stunt guys like Robbie Madison and Ryan Hughes and many others. Um, so if you know you have a lot of pains or injuries resolved or unresolved, then make sure that you space your branches appropriately, that you don't run out of room. 
when you finish that, you should have a set of roots and you should have a chronological history based on the branches. And you should remember include physical pains such as body trauma, bones, joints, muscles, any kind of gland or organ pathology. Uh, if you've had a concussion, if you've had uh, heart problems or do have them, uh, if you and you would write them down when they began, of course. If you got, maybe you had a heart problem for 10 years, you would write down when it began, not today. When it started to the best of your ability. Impotence, um, any kind of dysfunction that could potentially lead you to see a doctor or a therapist. Emotional traumas, such as a divorce or a death in the family, are important to put down because they're potentially strong psychological inputs that cause psychophysical reactions or psychosomatic reactions. Mental pains or traumas, such as uh, being criticized to the point that it was traumatic, um, being accused of things that caused you trauma. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, just your typical someone called you a dickhead or told you that your dress didn't look nice and you cried a little bit. I'm talking about something significant like, you know, legitimate mental emotional abuse or something that was challenging enough that you needed to see a doctor or a therapist and potentially have surgery or get put on drugs. And if you've had any surgeries whatsoever, each one should be listed as an injury itself because a surgery is an injury. And sometimes it's worse than the one you're getting surgery for. <laughs> I've seen lots of surgery, so I can assure you of that one. Okay. So now what a pain tree allows you to do is assess whether or not you have healed any prior injury or wound or source of pain that can contrib be contributing to what's called central sensitization of your central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord and your whole nervous system, really. Um, it starts in the brain and spinal cord, but branches out, which progressively stimulates the sympathetic nervous system to greater and greater levels of activity. So there's a real tipping point in each of us where the sympathetic nervous system overrides the parasympathetic system, which I described earlier, facilitating chronic uh, pain states and therefore an inability to recover physically, emotionally, or mentally, which leads to a progressive breakdown of body-mind systems. and gives you a label such as chronic fatigue uh, syndrome, fibromyalgia, or any diagnosis that a doctor use with the word syndrome, such as low back pain syndrome, uh, neck pain syndrome, um, digestive syndrome. A little tip for you. Whenever a physician uses the word syndrome in a diagnosis, it generally translates to the fact that the doctor hasn't got a clue what's going on, so they use the closest syndrome diagnosis they can to meet the needs for insurance payment or to write you a prescription for drugs. But you should be suspicious whenever a doctor gives you a diagnosis with the word syndrome that the doctor doesn't really know what's happening and look for a more skilled doctor. And I have seen a many a prescription with the word syndrome on it. 
Now, because the body-mind is fully integrated, any unresolved pain, injury, illness, infection, etc. can be a hidden source of pains and dysfunction anywhere else in the body-mind. Such as when a person is um, orphaned, left by their mother and father at an early age, even though they have no conscious memory of the event, that can leave a psychic wound in them that can be the source of all sorts of problems from stomach ulcers to digestive trouble to chronic back pain. The list is long. I've seen it all. Okay. So remember, any of these pains, injuries, illnesses, or infections can be the source of pain and dysfunction anywhere else in your body, mind, And such limitations are very commonly overlooked. That's why having a pain tree is very good so you can look and then look at Pfluger's laws and you'll see, wow, this became that, that became this. And you'll probably notice Pfluger's laws are very alive in your pain tree. Now, the result of all this overlooking of these things is a lot of palliative care that costs a lot of money. Palliative means symptom treatment, but not getting to the cause And ultimately doesn't work in the long run because as long as the root cause of someone's pain is not addressed, which is called the etiology, the pain pain stimuli continues to grow and spread and cause problems potentially at any level of your being. And the more physical pain we have, the more resources we burn up and the more likely we are to start having other health problems, including things like depression and other psychological problems challenges. Linus Pauling, for example, identified that the pain, uh, the body uses about 50 times more vitamin C per hour when it's in pain than when it's not in pain. Now, if you were to look into the research, you'd probably find something similar with any number of nutrients. So people that for any number of reasons stay in chronic physical, emotional, mental pain can really deplete themselves of internal resources quickly. And if they're not eating the kind of high-quality organic food diet and using the approaches I teach in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, or my last four doctors you'll ever need, or my HLC, Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1 online training, then they're going to probably end up in much worse conditions on a lot more medical drugs and with a lot more addictions, and they're going to be a lot more of a dependent, meaning that their family will have to pay more and more attention to caring for them because they're more and more disabled. And I've seen this go all the way down the line to complete disability. So when it comes to using your pain tree, looking at the pain tree, particularly if you're sharing it with a skilled check professional, a therapist, or a physician, allows you to determine where in your body-mind healing needs to be focused so that you can unlock the cycle of pain propagation. So identifying unresolved drivers of pain is essential to determining what level of your being, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, needs therapy and what therapeutic approaches may be uh, most ideal. Now, you, as the, as the person without clinical training, aren't the one to figure that out. You could look at the list and say, okay, well, wow, that still happens. Or, geez, I, you know, I hurt my back really bad 
15 years ago, but I still have to be really careful about bending and twisting because it pops out on me now. And then that tells you that those circuits are still very alive. They're just like Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall waiting for just a little wind to blow him off. So the key point is the any of those things you still have a level of intensity with, I would indicate that on your pain tree with a, one to t a zero to 10 diagram. Zero, no pain. 10, so much pain it makes you suicidal. And the higher the level of pain you have, the lower in the tree, the more likely it is to be causing things anywhere up the tree all the way to the top and even potentially reverberating back down into the root system and activating old fears, traumas, and issues that you might not otherwise be experiencing if there wasn't such a charge on the system activating these old facilitated pathways. So I'll give you a couple of examples of um, cases I've, I've worked with. I once had a professional baseball pitcher from the New York Yankees, if I remember right, this is probably in around, oh, 95, that was referred to me after having three shoulder surgeries, rotator cuff repairs, and he was having a very hard time getting his pitching performance back and getting his throwing speed up and was having chronic intractable pain in his throwing arm. And he happened to know somebody that knew me uh, professionally who suggested he come and see me. Long story made short, when I did an evaluation on him and looked at his pain history or his pain tree, I noticed that he had had turf toe since early in his baseball career. And so I said, hmm, that's interesting. So what I did was I basically took about a two-pound medicine ball, put my rebounder at one end of the gym, took him, you know, 20 steps or as far away as I could due to the size of the room, and said, just go through the motions of throwing a pitch with this medicine ball. And the ball was not much bigger than a medicine ball, so it wasn't that unusual. And it was probably maybe just twice as heavy as a medicine ball. And I noticed as he did his wind-up, when he went to step into the pitch with his leading leg, he did not use his trailing leg. He actually stepped forward with kind of a thrusting lunge, arched his back to stretch his abdominals, and then whipped his arm like cracking a whip. So he avoided using his leg. And the... Uh, the force, about 56% of the force in any implement thrown by the hand comes from the lower body and the core. So when I saw that, I thought, well, there's, he's definitely not generating force and transferring it through the kinetic chain, which is causing him to have to throw his body weight forward, pre-stretch his abdominals, which excites them and helps accelerate his shoulder. And I noticed that he was using his rotator cuff muscles, his internal rotators, like an eccentric spring, so that as he snapped his head forward, his muscles would contract, but he was putting tremendous stretch on the tendons, which would be like if someone's doing chin-ups and they're bouncing off the bottom, or they're bouncing the barbell off their chest doing the bench press, which 
for a professional baseball pitcher's shoulder could lead to uh, way too much repeated trauma. You know, this is a guy who probably throw a ball 95 to 100 miles an hour and throws hundreds and hundreds of pitches. Uh, you know, I think the average professional baseball player throws 4 million pitches in their career. So imagine all that repetition. So I immediately smelled a rat because I'd seen that indication of turf toe. So what I did is I took an Airx mat and I rolled it up to make a mock uh, pitching curb there. So like like the, the plate, the pitcher's plate that they stand on, the white plate on the mound. And I knew that the Airx mat would be thick enough to allow his foot to rock forward and let his toe drop into that mat without uh, dorsiflexing or bending the toe backward enough to irritate the joint so much. And so I built that up and said, okay, here's the ball. Just do exactly what you just did. Just throw it like you normally would, but keep your right foot on this mound like you would do on a pitching mound. And so the mat was high enough that as he came off, there was room for his foot to rock before his toe had a lot of pressure on the ground and had to go into dorsiflexion. And lo and behold, he threw that ball so damn fast, it hit the rebounder, bounced off, hit the ceiling, knocked the ceiling tile right out of the ceiling. And fortunately, it was a small medicine ball or it probably would have done a lot of damage to the roof. And he looked at me like he was in shock because he, in his mind, knew he hadn't tried to throw the ball any harder than before. And he said, what happened? And I laughed and I said, that's what happens when you inhibit the pain from your great toe on your right side, which is your driving leg, your, your pushing leg to accelerate the ball. And by a, the mat absorbing it and letting your foot go through a natural motion without causing so much pain stimulus, your brain allowed you to recruit the motor neurons that drive all the muscles that you use to throw the ball at a more normal level of intensity. And he was mind boggled. So he had so much damage in his great toe, he only had four degrees of dorsiflexion. It takes 60 degrees of dorsiflexion just to walk normally. And there was too much degenerative change. So I sent him to a sports podiatrist and had a special shoe called a rocker shoe made for him, which allowed him to pitch fairly normally with a dysfunctional foot because we, with a rocker shoe, you custom make the sole of the shoe so it's like a rocker and it compensates to allow you to transfer weight across your foot without having to dorsiflex the great toe. So he was able to go back to pitching. Another case I had was an Australian model who somehow managed to get hold of my phone number and was threatening to commit suicide if I didn't help her. So I was at dinner after teaching a long workshop. And when the call came through to my manager, which was handed to me, it was bit of a stressful thing to have to deal with. But a long story made short, this girl had a very severe eating disorder. She was anorexic, bulimic. I had, she later showed me pictures of her modeling. She was, you know, just an absolute drop dead, gorgeous babe. She was living in Australia, but her parents were from Iran, if I remember right. She was a very beautiful girl, but she had tremendous parental stress. Her parents were Muslim. She was Muslim, raised in a hardcore Muslim tradition. 
but she kept falling in love with Christian men. And that triggered off a massive battle between her mother and her and her father and her and a lot of deep um, manipulative behavior from the parents and telling her she was going to burn in hell, she was disgracing the family, etc., etc. So the reason I bring this case up is there was so much trauma mentally and emotionally going on that ultimately her reaction was to stop eating and to atrophy and to have all sorts of pain all over her body because she ultimately went into the law of generalization. And so here's a case where a psychological trauma that kept going. Also in her culture, if you were not married by something like 28 years of age, you were considered sort of like something was wrong with you, like damaged goods. And in their culture, the girls are not allowed to, the women or young girls or women are not allowed to leave home until they're married. And so she was having to live with her parents. Well, at the time she was 28 years of age, very successful financially as a model and would come home after dating men uh, and parents would spy on her and all sorts of stuff. And the end result was she would get attacked every time she walked in the door and every time she walked out the door. And this actually happened twice where she fell in love with a Christian guy and was about to marry one of them. But the parents of each party also started battling with each other, which drove her deeper into pain and really quite literally psychosis. So using my personal, professional, spiritual success, mastery lessons as a model to guide her. We were able to resolve that. Ultimately, she was able to reprogram herself, get healthy, find someone that she loved, get married, and restore uh, a normal body. But it took a lot of work because there was a lot of trauma involved. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check. In the next episode, Paul continues the Pain Teacher series by talking about the four types of responses the ego has to pain, as well as exploring the concepts of instincts and consciousness. You'll learn about Paul's I, we, all model of loving and how we create pain by not understanding that we are the source of love for ourselves and our relationships. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4DPodcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and at the Czech Institute's new streaming channel, checkiva.com. Music